on the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry. I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919, 1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. On this week's Big Tech Show, when will cars safely drive themselves on our streets? And who in Ireland is providing the technology to help them do that? We talk to one of the country's biggest automotive autonomy entrepreneurs. I have BMW Drive Assist in my own vehicle and it is much, much safer because we are all prone to distraction, especially when we're on the motorway from Limerick to Dublin, for example. We've all been there where you actually forgot a whole section of the road. So I would say if you take it from a safety perspective and it does allow you to kind of relax. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Sophie Toscan Duplantier's badly beaten body was found here close to her west coast. A thousand people have been interviewed by Gardaí during the course of their investigations. 66-year-old Bailey was convicted in absentia following a trial in France four years ago. C'est une victoire, c'est une victoire pour que la justice... When Ian Bailey died, there were very few voices who publicly challenged the perceived wisdom that he was the killer of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. But one woman who believes there has been far too much focus on Bailey is retired forensic officer Bridget Chapuis. I won't say that I was convinced of Ian's innocence, but I certainly could find nothing that sort of led me to believe in his guilt. And so I wanted to probe it further. Bridget was in communication with Bailey right up to the day before he died. Not with the aim of proving his innocence, but with the hope of finding the truth about one of Ireland's most notorious unsolved murder mysteries. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Bridget Chapuis, retired senior forensic investigator with the Met Police and West Mercia Police, to hear how she got to know Ian Bailey and the possible avenues of investigation that she thinks weren't given enough attention. I am saying to you that I didn't kill her. I had no knowledge of the killing, and I'm an innocent man. Bridget, you recently spoke with my colleague Maeve Sheehan for a feature in the Sunday Independent about your look at the Ian Bailey, Sophie Tuscan, the Plontier case based on your 28 years of experience as a, a senior forensic investigator in the UK working with the police there. But I might start just by asking you how it even came to be that you found yourself looking at these files. What drew you to the case in a small place in West Cork? Really, it's down to lockdown, um, the second lockdown particularly, because that was at the start of winter and it was very very cold and grey and dark and I was very, very bored. And I happened to read an article in The Telegraph about the upcoming Jim Sheridan documentary. 
And I'd never heard of the the case or anything like that, but it referenced the West Cork podcast. So really, I started with that and it drew me in and I started to read more and more. I bought books and sort of trawled the internet um, and eventually, you know, came to sort of the conclusion that there was something very, very fundamentally wrong going on here. And um, I wanted to look into it further. So that's really how it started. And that led you to reach out to Ian Bailey, is that right? It did. Funnily enough, I was in, I've been looking back at my sort of interactions with, um, with Ian. I first reached out to him in sort of about the middle of 2021, really because I couldn't find anybody else who'd be prepared to talk to me. And so I thought, well, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And at that point, having read everything that I could, I won't say that I was convinced of Ian's innocence, but I certainly could find nothing that sort of led me to believe in his guilt and so I wanted to probe it further. I reached out to him on Facebook and understandably he was very suspicious to start with but eventually I think he obviously sort of realized that I wasn't sort of going to stab him in the back if you like and so sort of slowly we developed a a relationship of sorts and eventually he sent me everything that he had, which was the paperwork from the French trial, plus paperwork from the two trials in the High Court in Ireland, the libel and the wrongful arrest. And I started ploughing my way through that. Can you talk me through that first interaction with Ian Bailey? Because I'm sure the publicity around the podcast, around the Jim Sheridan, the Netflix series, I'm sure he's had lots of people from all over the world um, coming to him and looking for exclusives and stories and more information. So how did you gain his trust? I think mainly because I wasn't really looking for anything from him other than sort of information, if you like. I mean, I wasn't a journalist. I wasn't a documentary maker. I wasn't a sort of, you know, an author. I was just somebody who was fascinated by the case and really had no other agenda other than trying to get to the bottom of things, I suppose. So I think it was probably the fact that there wasn't any other agenda other than a genuine desire to investigate the case. So you get all the files. After more than two decades, what are we, what are we talking about here? <laughs> um, we're talking about a huge amount of paperwork. Um, I mean, most of it came over on a a zip file, but I also got several large banker's boxes of actual physical paper. Um, And really, then it was just a case of literally sitting down for hour after hour, day after day, and reading and reading and reading until you feel as though your head's going to explode with the whole thing. Um, And then, you know, making notes, cross-referencing, all of that. And it, I mean, it's still ongoing. I mean, I still pick up the file almost every day and, and read another bit of it. Um, I'm lucky, I suppose, in that I sort of read and understand reasonable French because a lot of it obviously was in French because it came from the French trial. And there was an awful lot of articles from the French press, 
you know, around the time of the murder and subsequently. So it it really has just been a, a question of sort of legwork and just sort of sitting there and reading and reading and reading. It's kind of a, a cold case review all of its own. It is indeed. I mean, that's exactly what um, I, I wanted to do. I've done cold case reviews when I was in the police force. And I felt that that's what it needed because there's been so much sort of hype and publicity and speculation around the case and particularly around Ian Bailey. And I wanted to take it back to Sophie. I felt that in all of this, the real victim, um, Sophie, had kind of become lost and I felt that she deserved another chance. Um, And I felt that the only way to do this was to go right back to the beginning and try and just look at the facts and try and pull the facts out of all the other stuff that's been written around it and try and get back to actually what I would have done was I investigating the case back in 1996. One of the things that struck me after Ian Bailey's death was it was very hard to find somebody from a newspaper's perspective where I sit who felt that he was innocent. There were rare exceptions. There was people like Jim Sheridan. But really, the narrative went, now that he's dead, it's okay to say that it most likely was him. Your contention is that there are other possible narratives to explore here, and you're pretty convinced of that. So let's maybe walk me through some of your analysis, starting with Sophie's Cottage. Yeah, I think the first thing that you need to understand about the location, if you like, is just how isolated it is. My sort of gut feeling, and I think, you know, a lot of people's feeling would be, you would have to know that it was there. It's on a little dirt track, effectively, off a lane. It doesn't go anywhere. There are three houses um, and the road actually ends there. It doesn't go on past um, Sophie's house and the other two houses. It ends at the gate that leads into the three houses. It can't be seen from the road. It's not signposted. And of course, this was in the days before Google Maps, it's worth reminding people. Exactly. So, you know, you would have to know, you, you wouldn't actually accidentally pass it, you know, out on a walk or... You know, you would have to really, really know that there was something there and to a certain extent probably have to have a reason for being up there. You have concerns about the forensic examination of the scene. What did you find there? Firstly, I want to say this is not a sort of, you know, pop at at the police or anything like that. Um, They were in, certainly the initial officers on the scene were in a very difficult position. They were local officers who'd never had to deal with anything like this, and particularly not something that was quite obviously from a very early stage going to be very high profile. So I think you've got an element of people just not really understanding what was required at that stage. But you've also got the issue around the fact that um, the pathologist didn't arrive until 24 hours after Sophie's body had been discovered. And with regards to the scene examination, I think beyond the scene examination, if you like, what I can't find, and I have reached out to the family in France and to various other people, but had no response. But in order to establish what's out of the normal, you have to know what is normal. So you have to know what Sophie's normal 
daily routine when she was in Ireland was. Did she get up early? What did she do? How did she dress? What did she eat for breakfast? All that sort of thing. And it, it seems to me that that was never asked. So without knowing that, you can't then decide what was off about it, if you see what I mean. Professor Harbison, the, the pathologist, he estimated the time of death as being late on December 22nd or early on the 23rd. What's the significance of trying to get something a little bit more exact? Well, obviously, the more exact you are with the time of death, the more you can either eliminate or include suspects in it. And time of death is never an exact science unless you actually have somebody who witnesses it or you come on a body fairly soon after the murders occurred. But once you sort of, the further you get away from the time of death, the harder it is to actually estimate that time of death. And given the circumstances in this case where the pathologist didn't examine the body for well over 24 hours. You have to look at other means of trying to get closer to that time of death because you can't do it on body temperature. You can't do it on things like that. So the more you know about the circumstances surrounding Sophie's life, the more you can try and narrow down the time of death. Which led you to question, would it be possible that it was actually morning time on December 23rd that she was killed? How did you come to that question rather than conclusion, maybe it's fair to say? I mean, to my mind, when, once I started looking at the sort of the facts and the descriptions of the scene on that morning, John Harbison's report, all of that. First of all, I think if you look at the police premise at the time, which was that the murder occurred sort of in the early hours of the morning of the 23rd, possibly around 2, 2.30, which would sort of mean that Sophie had got up um, uh, to go downstairs, but there were no lights on in the cottage when the police finally gained access to it. The front door was locked with the keys in the back of the door, which begs the question, if somebody knocked on your door at half past two in the morning, would you get up and stumble around in the pitch black, but manage to put your shoes on and lace them up? and go to the back door without ever turning a light on. So I think that was the first thing that sort of struck me is because I know that the first thing I would do if I heard somebody knocking on my door when I was in bed would be to put the bedside light on. That was the first thing. And then I started looking at the pictures and particularly the picture of the kitchen as it was when the police found it with a book on the table propped open by a jar of honey, um, a cup of tea uh, or a cup, um, which appears to be empty, but you can't see what's in it because the photos aren't that detailed. A chair pulled back from the table, which kind of, to me, said nothing sort of, you know, so much as somebody sitting there reading a book and watching the sunrise looking out on the, you know, because the table is looking directly out of the front window of the, the cottage. And then you also have to look at her stomach contents, which were fruit skins and possibly nuts, and ask yourself, is that an evening meal or is that more likely to be breakfast? And bearing in mind that Harbison said that she had... Um, consume that maximum three hours before her death, you've then got to look at the fact that if she died at round about 2, 2.30 in the morning, she's eating fruit and nuts 
when her husband said she was in bed and on the point of sleep. And it's things like that that sort of kind of make you look again at what is, if you like, the accepted premise that she died at sort of around 2.30 in the morning. Talk to me a little bit about your view of the scene then in terms of where Sophie's body was found and how police treated it when they arrived? I think, again, the first thing I should say is I am very much a a generalist. My job is to analyse evidence and to decide what the best way of examining it is. There are specialists who deal in pathology, in blood pattern analysis and things like that, and they would be ultimately better qualified to talk about aspects of that. And I have spoken to experts that I know about aspects of the case. I mean, the first thing we think we should talk about is the gate, because Sophie was absolutely fanatical about keeping the gate closed. All the gates closed. There were actually three gates to the point where one of her friends sort of said that even if it was pouring with rain, she would get out of the car and either unclose the gate, whichever way she was going. And we know she came home about half past five on the Sunday because she made a telephone call to France to a friend to wish her happy birthday. And the gate was closed at that point. The postman comes by about six and confirms that, according to his statement. But yet, The next morning, the gate is standing not just ajar, but wide open, pushed as far back as you can get it against the fence, which suggests that, you know, somebody at some point has come in through that gate. And if you were on foot, I would suggest, and again, it's only my interpretation, that you wouldn't need to push the gate so far back that it didn't spring back on you. You would open it as far as you needed to get through it and either leave it ajar or let it swing back on itself. So you have to say, well, why was the gate standing wide open? It also seems to me from sort of my examination of the scene that all of the assault or the uh, took place in the vicinity of that gate, just from the way the distribution of evidence, the blood patterns and things like that, everything actually took place in the vicinity of that gate. So what does that tell us, Bridget? I guess you're putting forward interesting theories, but where does that lead us in terms of the investigation then in your mind? I just think that with the police fixing on Ian Bailey so early on as a suspect, And I think the first sort of mention of him, if you like, as a possible subject was actually from one of the officers who was guarding the scene on that day, who wrote a report about his suspicious behavior at the scene or his perceived suspicious behavior at the scene. And obviously the fact that he had previous convictions for assault. And it became very obvious that very early on they sort of fixated on on him as a suspect, at which point they ceased to look at other possibilities. And there's a, a phenomenon basically called target fixation or confirmation bias, where you are so convinced in your own mind that you know what happened, that you ignore or dismiss any other evidence that contradicts your view as that the person who saw it was mistaken or, you know, this, that and the other. And it's not uncommon at all. And it leads to sort of, you know, fairly significant miscarriages of justice. And I think this is what you have in this case, the idea that they 
decided very early on that uh, that Ian Bailey was was their suspect, and from that point, anything that didn't tie in with that narrative was dismissed as a mistake or or whatever you want to call it. So they went down one road when there was there was multiple roads that could have at least been explored. There were absolutely. I mean, initially there were several suspects um, that were named in the Garda files. And there were, again, several people who had blood and hair samples taken from them. But when those samples actually got to the laboratory, the only ones that were analysed were uh, Ian Bailey's. And it seems to me that at a very early stage, they had decided that that was the route they were going to take. You actually spoke to Ian Bailey the day before his death. What was the nature of the conversation? We had a um, a WhatsApp chat or a Facebook chat. And it was really just me checking in on him because I hadn't heard from him for a while. And obviously, you know, I knew he'd been ill. Um, I'd heard from him both times when he was in hospital previously with his two heart attacks. And I hadn't heard from him in a little while. So it, it was really, I, I just sort of messaged him to ask how he was and if he'd heard any news about when he was possibly going into hospital to have the bypass and he messaged me back saying that you know he was okay he felt quite unsettled by the whole thing but he was okay and that was on the the Saturday morning and then obviously I got the news on the Sunday that he passed away. Every month, the Sunday Independent, in conjunction with Ireland, thinks they run a, a poll uh, on various topics in, in Irish life, I guess. And a slightly unusual question, but given the, the public interest and engagement that there was around this story, one of the questions they polled last month was whether people believe that Ian Bailey was responsible for the death of Sophie Tuscombe de Pontier. Now, 37% said yes, 30% said no, and 33% weren't sure. Does that level of divisiveness surprise you? Not really. When I first went into this, I was fairly convinced that probably 99% of Ireland thought Ian Bailey was guilty of the murder. And I've been kind of surprised by actually the the level of sort of not support for him, but the level of support for the view that maybe um, he didn't do it or maybe there are other possibilities. Um, But I I do really, really want to stress that, I mean, we're talking about Ian Bailey, but this has got to be about Sophie. um, And that was my sort of my hope when I went into looking at this was to try and sort of get justice for mainly for Sophie and for her family because I actually don't believe they've had justice. But also if Ian Bailey didn't do it for all the other people that have been impacted by this 27 years of perhaps misguided investigation. Well, on that point then, given that you have gone through all these files that the cold case unit in the Garda are going through at the same time. Now, obviously, you don't have access to the fresh round of interviews that they have done with some of the witnesses. Um, we know that they carried out a raid at the property where Ian Bailey was living to seize some items belonging to him after his death. So you obviously don't have access to any of that. But do you think that there is still a possibility of justice for Sophie? 
I hope so. I really hope so. As I said, and I mean, I said it to Ian right at the very beginning, I can find nothing at the moment that convinces me of your guilt. But if I did find anything in going through all these files, I wouldn't hesitate to go to the, the authorities with it because this is about, effectively, it's not about you. It's about Sophie and about finding justice for Sophie. I think as well as what the Garda are currently doing with the cold case review, there is an awful lot in their files that we haven't seen. I know that I haven't seen anywhere near what they hold. What I have seen is what they released to the French authorities ahead of the trial in, in France. But that is only a tiny proportion of what they hold, I believe. Well, Bridget Chapuis, it's a fascinating insight and a different perspective on the whole investigation. Thank you very much for joining us on the Indo-Daily. Not at all. It's a pleasure. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Garrick Mulhall, researched by Dave Hanratty, with sound by John Smith. Archive clips were from RTE News and the Irish Independent. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to follow and leave us a review. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. 